This is the close of our series on holy. And so today I want to begin to just bring things together and to sum them up. And as I was thinking about that, you know, Scripture says that, that all things are summed up in Christ. And I was like, oh yeah. So I want to tell you where we're going today before we even begin, which is this. That if I, I leave you with anything about holiness and, and what it is and what it means, that if I can point you today toward Jesus, you will always know holy. Because He is the perfect image of holiness. And so, uh, in doing that, we need to go back and I need to make sure that we all have some understanding of words. And so, this word holy has always been defined or mostly been defined by a lack of sin. That never helped me much. Because I'm like, I don't live in that world. Like I grew up in sin and, and it's all around me. And, and so I'm familiar with sin. Sinlessness, not so much. So I'm like, that is like trying to define light by describing it as not dark. Does that make sense? If someone asked you what is light, you would say, well, it's not dark. And they say, well, okay, that's great, but you still didn't tell me what light is. So with holiness, a lot of times we do that. And the reason I bring it up is because when people see this word holy, they tend to turn and run, or at least turn and walk away because they think, well, that's not me. So I have no place there. And they, they leave it, and most people can't even define it. But I tell you that we can define it this way. It is by first mention in Scripture when it said that, that God set apart the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and He made it holy. What He was saying is that day was holy because it was complete. It was finished. Everything was done. So if there is a definition for holy that I think you need to carry with you is that holiness means first and foremost, whole. Oh, now see, I'm encouraged by that. I don't want to run from holy if holy means whole. In fact, I want to come to the water and drink. I'm like, can, can I have some of that water? <laughs> I want to be whole too. And so it, it draws me. And then there's another unique thing that you have to know about holy. It's that holy in Scripture you will find at different times. You'll find it in Isaiah when the seraphim, these flaming angels are crying now. They cry out, holy, holy, holy. And then in prayer time this morning, we went over to Revelations 4. And what are they singing at the end of days? They're singing, holy, holy, holy. You have to understand that in the Bible, they didn't have a way to underline and put an exclamation mark and about five or six emojis out beside something in order for you to know that it was important. Some of y'all texting people, you know, if you want to make something important right, you put it in all caps and you underline it and you put some exclamation marks after it and you put some emojis after it because you're like, this is important. There's none of that in Scripture. They don't have that capacity. The language didn't allow for it. So what did they do? They repeated a word. That's why when Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you, you ought to know, oh, verily, verily. He repeated that phrase. Oh, I better listen up. Because what he's getting ready to say, he thinks it's important. Verily, verily. But you see, it didn't say holy, holy, did it? 
It's holy, holy, holy. That's how important this word is. That God would say it three times. Holy, holy, holy. And holy is not one of the attributes of God. Are you with me? You with me? Holy is not one of the attributes of God. It is the sum total of all the attributes of God. Isn't that good? You see, God is not holy and loving. Mm -mm. Holy's in a whole nother category. That's why it means set apart or set aside or cut from another cloth. It is because holy means that you take all of the attributes of God and you bring them all together in perfect harmony. And what do you have? You have something that no one else has. You have holy. Holy is the sum of all of God's attributes. And so I want to talk to you about some of the attributes of God real fast. And Molly, you were preaching the message, girl. I was like, go, Molly. When she was declaring the names and the nature and the attributes of God, all of those go into making God who He is. Now, it's getting close to the first of the year. And we tend to do some things at the first of the year. You know, we get a gym membership, and uh, we, we get us a Bible reading plan because we're going to read the Bible more. And You know, we do some things at the beginning of the year. We're going to start some disciplines. And so I'm going to plant one in you, and I'm going to see if anybody takes me up on this, okay? Here's an assignment that I, I haven't done either. I'm putting it on my to-do list of assignments, okay? Which is to follow the revelation of the nature of God from the beginning of the Bible to the end that you would start and you would need to get a chronological Bible to do that because you would have to get it in the order in which it's written. And you know the, the Bible is not written in chronological orders. When you get to the prophets, Isaiah is first because Isaiah is the biggest prophetic book and Jeremiah follows and it goes all the way down to the smallest book. But you would need to get a chronological Bible. And if you did, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to give you the first one. To get you started, because everybody needs a little help getting started, right? Does anybody know, first thing, God revealing Himself? Genesis 1-1, God says, in the beginning, God created. God reveals Himself in His nature, very first time in all of Scripture, in Genesis 1-1, as, I am a Creator. But then you follow those things throughout Scripture. And the ones that I'm interested in is when God says that He is something. That God is, and then there is a nature that follows. And so, in Exodus 33, verse 19, if you remember this, Moses wants to see the glory of God. That is the, the visible presence of God. And God says, okay. And He says, you want to see my glory? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. Can I tell you that one of the fundamental attributes of the nature of God is God's goodness? And he said, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. If you want to see my glory and you want to see my face, then you're going to have to see goodness because that's who I am. Oh, that gets me excited. Sometimes I preach myself happy. Oh, and he said... My goodness is so powerful 
that I will have to hide you because to look on my face, to look on my goodness, it'll kill you. Go on and ponder that one for a little bit when you get home after you eat lunch today. That the goodness of God in raw form without anything blocking, diminished none whatsoever, would kill you. That is how powerful the goodness of God is. Never diminish goodness as though it is not important or not powerful. In fact, I will tell you of one quick experience I had. We were over in my office praying before the service like we do many times, and, and I'm praying, and I felt like I was going to die. It was like something started to, to grab a hold of me, and it was, I, I wasn't sure what it was. <laughs> and so I asked the prayer team, I'm like, is this God or is this something trying to kill me? Because I ain't wanting to die today. And they prayed and they're like, no, this is God. So rather than pray, make it stop, I said, Lord, let me, let me be able to bear up under the weight of this thing. And it was like the glory of God grabbed hold of me. And I literally thought it was going to kill me. But I, I, I trusted my people around me enough that I'm like, okay, if we all think this is God, then God is good and God has no intention of killing me. This is just goodness and love like I've never experienced before. And you will find that people throughout time have had these kinds of visitations where God comes on them and you think, oh my goodness, this is so much, it'll kill me. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, he said the love of God came in such power that he thought it would kill him. And so the, the goodness of God is fundamental. God said in 1 John 1.15, he said that God is light. Is light. And in him is no darkness. That means that God is good for everything that he says. There is not a shadow in him. There is not a, a two-sided nature to him. God is light. He goes on in 1 John chapter 4, 8. And he says, God is, it's my favorite one. Does anybody know what my favorite one is? God is love. God is love. It didn't say that God is occasionally loving. No, it said his very nature is the essence of love. If you want to know what love is, you will have to get in touch with God to find it. Because God is love. I'm skipping around in Exodus 34, 14. I was just doing these as they came to me and writing them down. It says that, that God is jealous. I preached a message one time that God is not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. Anybody who's ever been in love might have found a little bit of jealousy. In fact, God says, my name is jealous. <laughs> he said, you, you want to know who my name is? You want to talk to me? Call me jealous. You know why? He said, because I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous for you. Anybody who's ever experienced love says, I want you. I want all of you. And if anyone tries to attack or harm or make fun of the person that I love, ooh, then turn jealousy loose. And see if you have not found Hebrews 12, 29. God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. 
And I told this the other week, and Brantley and I were discussing it afterwards. I said, you know, I've decided that the consuming fire of God is the love of God. And it burns up everything that is not love. So if you want to come with anything that is not love, and you want to come into the presence of God, realize that whatever that is that is not love is going to get consumed by the love of God and the fire of God. God is a judge. Psalm 56, for God Himself is a judge. And then you go on down, and man, we could talk about so many of the attributes. Here's some of the ones that I wrote. That He is almighty, and He is powerful, and He is perfect. He is glorious in all His ways. Deuteronomy says that He is just. But Romans 9 says He is merciful and forgiving. Psalms 145.8 says that He is gracious, and He is faithful, and He is wise, and He is patient. And I struggle to take all of those and put them together and say, God is the sum of all of those. He is the sum of all of those. Because when I'm doing my math, and I'm not a very good mathematician. In fact, Chris Eifert will tell you. Chris is the math guy. I'm not a good mathematician, but when I look at that list, some of those things don't add up to me. Like consuming fire and love, they don't seem to go together, right? Forgiving and jealous, they don't seem to go together. Merciful and just, they don't seem to go together. And so I find that many Christians approach God as though He is schizophrenic. And that is not to make fun of mental illness, honestly. It is not. We, we know the devastation of that. But many people believe that God is somehow schizophrenic. Like He's got a, a good side, but then He's got that bad side. And in fact, we'll even separate the Trinity, which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are together in perfect unity. And yet, I run into people all the time, and they're like, oh, that Jesus? Oh, I like me some Jesus. Have you ever found anybody that doesn't like Jesus? <laughs> Gandhi said, this Jesus, I like him. These followers of Jesus, I don't like them. Everybody likes Jesus. When they read about Jesus, you can't help but fall in love with Jesus. And yet there are many people walking around and they think that somehow Jesus and God are divided. And it's like, Jesus is the good one and the Father is the bad one. And it's Jesus that's kind of keeping you away from the anger of God. And I wasn't sure if I was going here, but I'm, I'm going here. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. There's a, a theologian named N.T. Wright. He says, if your theology allows you to somehow speak into that, that God is angry, and so he killed his only son, you missed the point. It didn't say that God was angry, so he killed his only son. Most people think that, that God was angry at him, and he decided not to kill you, he killed his son. And there is a substitutional work on the cross. But I'll tell you that no matter how many times you flip and contort John 3, 16, I'll tell you what it says, and it's not changing. God loved the world. He so loved the world. Not that He killed, but that He gave. That He gave His only Son. And so we cannot have a view of holy that means that God has a, a good side and a dark side, a, 
a mean and a happy uh, Jesus and an angry God side. Because in Matthew chapter 5, the message from last week, it said this, God is perfect. <laughs> perfect doesn't mean that you're without sin. The word perfect in the Greek meant consistent. It meant steady. God is consistent in all of His ways. So He's not running over here one day saying, you know what, Chris has been good today. I'm going to be good to Chris. Turns away and it's like, oh, you know what, Chris messed up. And so you know what, I'm going to get me some Chris today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to get him today. He is, he is consistent. And so whatever He does, He is operating in love because He can't cease being loved because God is love. So what Scripture is doing, it is bringing us to a place where He is progressively, God is progressively revealing Himself in Scripture until it comes to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it says, do you want to know what God looks like? He looks like Jesus. If you want to know what God the Father is like, if you want to know how He behaves, if you want to know His attitude towards sinners, if you want to know the way He deals with people, then you got to look at Jesus. And so I, I want to take you to some verses, if you'll go with me. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Listen to what this says. So if any of you have believed in a schizophrenic God, you can bring this thing back to some clarity, okay? Colossians 2, verse 9, For in Him, He's speaking of Jesus, the Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. How much of, the, of deity dwells in Jesus? How much? All. Read it again. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Is there any bit of Jesus that is not God? No. He is the fullness of God. And it dwells in Him in what? In bodily form. Now go over to Hebrews. We're going to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Oh my goodness, it doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? If I was a lawyer, I'd just read that to you and say, you know what, I rest my case. I'm done. My argument is over. It is over in Hebrews 1, chapter 3. And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. So what's the problem then? The problem is that if you do not read the word of God through the life of Jesus, then you're reading the word with a veil over your eyes. Did you know that? Some of you may be reading the Word of God right now and there's a veil over your eyes. And you can't sort it out. And you can't understand Scripture and you can't figure God out. And the reason is because it says that if you read Scripture without a revelation of Jesus, without knowing who Jesus is, then you are reading the Scripture with a veil over your eyes. So I guess we should read that so you'll know I didn't make it up, right? All right, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Y'all okay if we read the Bible today? Okay, here we go. Verse 
13. And they are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel not, would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. You're like, what does that mean? When Moses saw the goodness of God, the glory of God, his face glowed. And they would cover his face with a, with a veil. But as he spent less and less time in the glory, the glory would de decline. It, it would decrease on his face. Now keep reading. Verse 14. But their minds were hardened for until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Do you know that if you do not have the proper understanding of Jesus, then all of Scripture will be veiled to you? You can't make sense of it. You can't put it all together. Let's keep reading. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, see that? To this day, he was saying, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord Jesus, the veil is taken away. Oh, do you know that as you turn to Jesus, the veil is going to be lifted? As you keep turning to Jesus, you're going to see clearer and clearer who He is and what Scripture is meaning. And you're going to learn how to read Scripture. And so you'll go from a place where you're like, I just don't understand it, to a place where you'll go like, I think I might be getting this. To the place where you're like, I'm getting it. To the place you're like, I want more of this because I'm getting it. So I want to ask you, has the veil remained over your eyes when you read the Word? Because you have not read the Word through seeing Jesus in the Word. Mm. Hmm. So when Jesus comes on the scene then, He is the fullness of deity. He is the perfect representation of God. He is the one who lifts the veil. That means we may have misunderstood some things. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, He starts clarifying some things. So His life then is clearing up what we misunderstand about God. So Jesus comes on the scene and it is for God got to love the world that He gave His only Son. He comes to the world and you would think if God was coming to earth, He'd be coming mad. Because now, come on, that's how we come. Somebody did you wrong? Somebody forsook you? Somebody turned their back on you? You'd be like, yep, I'm, I'm going down to set some stuff straight. And so when God comes in Jesus, He walks up to people. This one blows me away. Blows my theology away. He walks up to some people and He looks at a man and He says, Sir, your, your sins are forgiven. That guy came because he wanted to get healed. He wasn't asking for his sins to be forgiven. Jesus looks at him and says, Sir, your sins are forgiven. And all the people looking go, You can't do that. They, they look at Jesus and they go, you, you can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. I can just imagine Jesus smiling going, I know. Because I am. <laughs> I am the I am. <laughs> I am the one with the power to forgive sins. And he tells a story about a prodigal who comes back and the father just receives him. 
And Jesus clarifies something for us. Do you know God's opinion of sinners? He wants to forgive them. He doesn't want them to have to pay. He doesn't want them to be punished. He wants to forgive. It's the hardest thing for Christians, it seems, to understand. But do you know that when you forgive people, it stops the offense at you? Did you know that? When you forgive, it stops the offense at you. But no, now go on and retaliate like you want to. And what happens? Now you create one sin upon another. Now one person's dead, but two. The message last week, now there's not one eye, but there's two eyes. And what Jesus is telling us is, you folks have missed a superior way to deal with sin. You know what the, the, the superior way to deal with sin is? Forgive. Because it takes all the sting out of it. They can't do anything to you anymore. And you say, but, but, but that person still keeps hurting me, Kevin. They, they still keep doing stuff to me. I'm like, oh yes, they do. So can I speak to you for a moment for the one who you have forgiven, but that person keeps hurting you. And they keep doing it over and over again. And you say, well, well, surely they should get it now, right? And I say, well, let me see if I can paint another picture for you. Because you see, I serve a God who is a Father and who loves me. And there have been countless times that I have done the same thing over and over and over again. And His mercies were new every day. <laughs> and He kept wiping my slate clean. And when He starts doing that, I don't even want to ask Him why He's doing it. <laughs> I, I'm just glad He is. Does that make sense to anybody in the room? When, when you know that you keep hurting somebody over and over again, and yet they forgive you over and over again, you realize something. The stuff you're doing really can't touch them. They're on a higher plane. Jesus is saying, I need you to live at a higher plane where you don't need revenge anymore. You can forgive. And in fact, people are going to keep hurting you. I just need to tell you that, okay? People are going to keep hurting you. And if you're going to live with that misconception and that naivete to believe that they will, I'm sorry. But when you look at Jesus, He keeps forgiving over and over and over again. And I tell people that are in that situation, I say, you are in a painful place where the people who are supposed to love you are hurting you. But you have the opportunity to grasp the incredible depth and height and breadth of the love of God who has for your entire life done that to you. For your entire life, He's been forgiven. And so Jesus comes and He says, the superior way is to forgive. And, and then when you find out that your sins are forgiven, you realize that you don't have to run anymore. That's why there's this parallel in Hebrews. It talks about Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Two mountains. And it says, the people didn't want to go up on Mount Zion because it was thundering up there and God was there and He was going to give the law and the people were afraid and they said, huh, I ain't going there. Hmm. Because remember, God is a consuming fire. 
when it was thundering this morning at dark 30, I was laying in my bed going, <laughs> Lord, that thunder's got nothing on you. That lightning has nothing on you. You are far greater than, than any storm. And yet it was thundering and it was lightning and they were afraid and they wouldn't go up. But Jesus is the picture of Mount Zion. And he says that God is love and God sent his son because he loved the world. And now we realize that we don't have to be afraid. But now you can come up on Mount Zion. You can come to Jesus. Why? Because when you approach him, you're going to find mercy and grace in your time of need. And so there was a picture of these two mountains and that's, that's our position. Do you want to know your position? Here's your position. You're the loved of God. That's your position. You're the loved of God. And because that is your position, you can approach one of the saddest things to me is an angry, alcoholic parent. It's so sad. Because what happens is, if you've ever grown up in a situation like that, and I've met people that have, is that you approach that person like this. How are they today? You know, you kind of walk into the room and you peek around the corner and you're like, are they good today? Because if they drunk and mad, then that means I got to play outside all day. In fact, I, I heard a young man tell me that. He said, I would come home and I would look at my dad to see if he was drinking and mad. And if he was drinking and mad, I knew I had to go outside and play until he went to sleep. You don't think you grow up in that environment that you won't begin to think that God is that way? And then you peek around the room and he's good. And so you're like, Whoo, okay, I can come into his presence today. And that leaves people in this position. It's like a roller coaster where you're up and down and high and low based on how you think God is observing you that day. Like he's a drunken father. Can I tell you that he's better than that? That your position is the consistent love of God. Now it's a fight. So let me tell you, you don't approach God like you do just anybody anywhere we, we have to approach him with a reverence. Yeah, but he's better. He's better than what we grew up in. And so then, then we can approach him. And let's talk about this thing of a judge for a little bit. Because we know that God is a judge and we tell people, God's going to judge you one day. Now, you know, you ain't supposed to judge, but that's okay because I'm just waiting. God's going to get you. You know? And... And we view God like an American judge with a black robe behind a desk. Can I tell you that when God speaks of a judge, there were no black robe judges standing behind desks like you see in America. That wasn't what he was talking about. That didn't even exist when he wrote it. Jesus and God are not a judge in a black robe behind a desk. Unfortunately, we view judges today and we, we put that image into Scripture. Actually, what I would love today is some, some judges who look into Scripture and see what it means to be a real judge. In fact, we have one in our midst, and I'm praying for her. She is new, and I am praying that, that Kim Williford, I believe she will be a good one because God is in her. 
What is a judge? If you want to know what a judge is, you ought to go back to a book called Judges. <laughs> if you want to let God and the Word inform you on what a judge is, you ought to go back to the Word. Judges. And in the book of Judges, what did those judges do? They came to deliver the people from the oppression and bondage around them. So when Jesus came, was He a judge? Absolutely. Because what did He do? He delivered people from the bondage of their sin, from the bondage of their sickness, from the bondage of their unforgiveness, from the bondage of their past. He judged it guilty and He set them free. Mm. Mm. Do you know what God does when He judges? He judges sin and He sets people free. That is what a biblical judge does. <laughs> and then, where is justice? In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He said, you have done well. They were tithed off of everything. Herbs. How many of you ever tithed your herbs? <laughs> They're tithing off of everything. Doing everything just right. According to the Word. And Jesus looks at him and He says, but you've forsaken the weightier matter of mercy and justice. He looked at the Pharisees and he said, you've been trying to keep all these rules and you've been trying to make sure that everybody else did, but you have forsaken the weightier things that you missed, that you will only see in me. Jesus, Jesus is standing before them. Mercy and justice. In the Bible, justice does not come from a courthouse. In the Bible, justice flows like a river. Oh, take that home and think about it. Justice. You remember that great speech from Martin Luther King Jr.? You want to know where justice, what it is? It doesn't come from black robes in courtrooms. Justice flows from the heart of God. Like a river. And you know where it flows to? It flows to the poor. It flows to the broken. It flows to the widows and to the orphans. Because that's the justice that Jesus sees. That's the justice that Jesus lives by. So we got to wrap this thing up and, and make this thing personal to you. So when Jesus comes, he reconciles judging and justice and wrath and consuming fire and love. He reconciles it. And, and the best image I can give you is this. Jesus is perfect love. And you don't mess with perfect love. You ever mess with a mama's child? If you did, you did it by accident. You didn't do it on purpose, did you? Huh? No, nobody messes with a mama's child on purpose because you know what you're going to get when you mess with mama's baby. You are going to get a consuming fire. And you are going to get wrath. And hell had no fury like the wrath of a mama. Right? Yeah, I'll give you another one. We're not big hunters. But can you imagine walking along in the woods and you making a bunch of noise and all of a sudden you see a bear? Now that's bad enough. But what if I tell you it's a mama bear? 
And now what if I tell you it's not just a mama bear, but now you have positioned yourself. You didn't know it accidentally. Here's mama. Here's you. Here's mama's cubs. You are in one of the most unfortunate positions you could be in. To have even given the hint that you are going to mess with a mama bear's cub. All of that is positional though. Because if I take you back to that mama. And you're that baby. Or that child. And somebody says. Did you see the wrath of your mama? The baby would say. No I didn't notice it at all. Was, was she? All I saw was her love for me. Oh, did that just hit home? You see, if you're the baby, if you're the child, you didn't notice the wrath. You didn't mind it at all because it wasn't aimed at you. It was aimed for you. You were like, I was grateful for it. You see, the love of God is positional. That bear, if you're the cub, the cub doesn't mind the, the bear growling and doesn't mind it running off the strangers at all. Why? Because that's mama. And that cub is safe with mama. Can I tell you that your position is the cub? Your position is the child. Which allows you to be able to run to what is an all-consuming, fire, jealous, wrathful God and say, I didn't even notice. He loves me. That is the, the privilege that you have to, to move in. It is only those who refuse salvation, who refuse Jesus, who refuse to believe in Him, who refuse to be loved by Him. Those are the ones who, because they refuse that, I tell you, they are a danger to the people around them. Because when you have refused Jesus, you have refused perfect love, and now you don't know what you're doing, and you're operating in brokenness and sin, and you're hurting people. And now, all of a sudden, Jesus is a mama bear. Because some of you are parents, and you have more than one. I didn't get qualified for more than that. It was all God said I could handle. But you have more than one. What happens when your kids are fighting and they're hurting each other? You come and you come with fire in your eyes. And you come with wrath in your eyes. But you love both of them, don't you? And you're intent on trying to save them both. But you are going to grab them up by the neck. <laughs> yep. And so you, you separate them. Here is the, the problem that we make. We think we can get in a position where we think we're the children of God. And everyone else is somehow hated by God. I need to break it to you, can I? He loves them as much as He loves you. Can I break that to you? All those people you hoping that God's going to get, <laughs> all those people you hope that He's going to unleash His wrath on, guess what? He loves them as much as He loves you. And because of that, I bet you He's going to show as much patience to them as He's shown to you. That's why when we see holiness for what it is, that it is being made whole, that I say, Jesus, I want to come to you, not afraid of you, 
knowing that I'm loved by you. I want to come into your presence, God, so that you can make me holy. So, so that you can judge the things that have put me in bondage and deliver me and set me free. So that you can proclaim justice for me, for justice for all people, that you'll take care of the poor and the widows and the orphans, and that begins to change things. Can I end with this? If all you think of holiness is that it is the absence of sin, then you'll spend the rest of your life trying to get rid of sin, and everybody else that has sin, you will separate yourself from them because you don't want nothing to do with them. Hmm. But if you come in contact with the true holiness of God, you will realize that sin has nothing on you and that you have power over it. And then when you see other people you know what you'll do? You'll want to make them whole too. You'll want to see that they're forgiven. You'll seek out their forgiveness. <laughs> the shooting in Charleston, the Emmanuel Nine. They did a documentary. Steph Curry did this documentary, and Brantley and I went and saw it. And there were some who could bring themselves to forgiveness. In fact, there's one man, he... He has an opportunity to speak to the shooter in court. This person who has unloaded a gun killed nine people in a church when they were having a Bible study. He has a chance to say something to him. What would you say? What would you say? This man looks at him and he says, Sir, I forgive you. Because I... I have to forgive you because I've been forgiven. And, and I can't hold anything over you. So i got to set you free. And so I'm, I'm forgiving you. And I hope that in doing that, you will have an opportunity to come to God. I said, oh my goodness. Mm. Now that is something. I said, you know what I've seen? I've seen holy. I saw holiness in that. But then there were those, and I get it, that they said, no, I can never forgive. And there may be some people in the room, and you're like, no, I can never forgive. But as they interviewed the, the, the two different categories, so to speak, the ones who forgave and the ones who couldn't get to that place yet, and forgiveness is a process. Can I tell you that? As much as people would like to say it's a single event, it is not so. You may be living in forgiveness right now and wake up Thursday morning and go, Ooh! Mm. And you're like, Ooh, what am I supposed to do? Forgive them again. Forgive them again. And if you wake up the following Tuesday, forgive them again. But I will tell you, there was a marked difference between the ones who had forgiven and the ones who couldn't get to that place. And I will tell you what, the ones who hadn't forgiven, they weren't whole. They were hurting. They were hurting. And there wasn't any way they were going to get out of that hurt until they found wholeness. You're supposed to be the light of the world. You're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to be perfect. But you'll never get there unless you know what that means is that God wants to make you whole. 
And then he wants you to touch everybody else's life around you and try to see that they're whole too. I pray. In fact, stand up with me. I've gone over. I, I apologize. Can you, can you tell that the, that the world is groaning for some people that would demonstrate true holiness? Can, can you see that the, that the world is broken and the only way that it's ever going to be made right is for people who can come and make things whole? They know how to forgive. They know what justice looks like. So I'm praying that in Jesus' name you have received the love and the forgiveness of God. But I pray that you wouldn't sit on it. Because I'll tell you that if you'll give it away, you'll get more. <laughs> Can I tell you that? Can I tell you that if you're faithful with just a little bit, that, that if you're faithful in that, that Jesus will give you more. So if you want to be holy, if you want to experience all of that, then I would say find ways to give it away. Between now and the first of the year, God, give our people an opportunity to offer forgiveness where it wasn't deserved. To, to restore people that other people might not think even deserve it. To do something nice to someone who maybe others don't think deserve it. That we might be the hands and feet of your son Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.